0: Well, good morning. As Joe said, I'm Baron Miller, and uh, it occurred to me the last time, and I'm I'm in the Navy, I'm a chaplain, if you guys don't know me, Uh, the last time I preached was uh, actually for a job interview in the Navy. I had to preach in this kind of high-pressure situation, and I did not get that job. So, this is like the Seahawks coming back from a loss. That's what we're seeing right now. We'll see how it goes. And if you're a Seahawks fan, as, as me and my family are, that could really go either way. Yeah. You never really know. Um, <clears throat> we're talking about, you know, the, the, the Christmas songs of Luke. And I thought I'd begin with a story of, of Christmas music. I just turned 43, so I've had a lot of Christmases under my belt. Every one, of course, you can mark time with music. Some Christmases have been very memorable. Uh, 13 years ago, my son was born on Christmas. It was very interesting. He came 10 weeks early. He weighed two and a half pounds. Uh, there were helicopters involved. He and my wife almost died. It's a whole other story. I'll, I'll get to that uh, another day. But one Christmas that stands out has to do with music. And I was, I was a, a young pastor at a church. And I'd left the church. I'd walk down the street to go to a grocery store. I go in the grocery store, and I get my items, and I'm standing at the conveyor belt, <clears throat> and the people in front of me are checking out, and I hear this organ music. Now, I hate the organ. I don't think anything sounds good played by an organ, and, uh, and so I hear this organ music, and it's like Christmas organ music. It's r- 10 days before Christmas, right? And I'm hearing the organ music, Christmas music, and I get up to the guy as he's checking my items, and I want to build some rapport. So, you know, it's the Merry Christmas, and I look at him, I go, brother, I am so sorry for you. And he goes, why? And I go, you have to listen to this, this Christmas music, all the whole shift, does it play? And he, and he looks at me, kind of nervous, and he goes, no, it's good, we like it, we like it here, it's good. And I'm like, what cult is he part of? So I, I, I'm not satisfied. So I, I push, I just dig a little deeper, seriously, man, this music sucks. Like, it's Oregon, it's Christmas, it's bad, and again, nervously he's checking my items, no, sir, it's good, we love it, we like it very much, it keeps us going, it keeps us in the holiday spirit. And he's checking my items, and I'm like, whatever, I let it go, I pay, I grab my items, and as I round the little corner out the store, there's a little old lady with a keyboard, plinking away, <laughs> Christmas Muzak, set to organ. And I realize, oh, I get it now, she was definitely in earshot, and next to her was this donation can, and she's raising money, and she's playing this Christmas Muzak, and I felt this big, And I looked at the donation money, and I looked at the old lady, and I just thought, man, at her age, she should know better. And so I just left, man. That doesn't affect how I don't like the organ. um, And so here we are, third week in Advent. As we get closer to Christmas, we get closer to Jesus' birth, the profundity of it begins to open up. And as I said earlier, we've been examining uh, the birth narrative through the lens of the songs. The first week we discussed Mary's song. Last week was uh, Zechariah's song. Today we're going to look at the angel's song in Luke chapter 2. If you brought your Bible, you can, you can turn there uh, ahead of time. Something in prep this week I, I discovered, Mary's song is 10 verses long. Zechariah's song is 11 verses long. And the angel's song that we're about to discuss is a single verse in length. It's 18 words. And I realized what Joe did. He gave himself these really robust texts where he can fill up lots of time talking. And then he basically said, "Baron, can you get us 20 minutes out of these 18 words? And I said, 20? Let's do 40! So that's what we're going to do. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And so what I want to do is talk about the birth announcement of Jesus, but there's really two responses there's, two, there's really two announcements, but I want to talk about the two responses. One, of course, is from the shepherds. We're going to dig into that. And then the other one is from the king at the time, a guy named Herod. So before we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your presence. It's good to be here as a, as a church. It's good to worship you. Lord, I, I ask right now that you open up all of our hearts and our minds to what you have in your word today. For me, Lord, that you open up my lips, that my mouth can bring forth your praise. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, to set the course today, I want to begin with a poem from an Irish poet named Seamus Haney. He wrote a play called The Cure at Troy, and in it is a, is a poem titled Chorus, and this is an excerpt from the poem. Listen to this. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave, but then... Once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Call miracle self-healing the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain or lightning in storm and a god speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. Wow. God speaks from the sky and it sounds like a baby being born. That's the sound of tidal wave of justice rising up. This poem has nothing to do with the birth announcement of Jesus, but I think it might have a lot to do with it. When we read the actual story, you're going to see some similarities. So let's look at Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 20. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, and here's the song, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherd said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord had told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now that's one response to the birth announcement. Jubilation. But not everyone 2,000 years ago was quite as enthusiastic over Jesus' birth, particularly the king at the time, King Herod, who responded very differently. And I'm sure at the time, the, the King Herod response was actually quite the talk around the dinner table, and we'll get to what that response actually was here in a moment, but over the centuries, the Christmas story hasn't really emphasized his role quite as much. Um, it's been buried in plain sight. It's right here in the scriptures, but it's not the stuff of, of sermons around this time, typically. And and, and um, though it's been buried, and it's right there, um, stories change a bit over time. We see this as we stel- tell stories. Uh, we've got those classic analogies of the fish story, right? You caught a fish, it was this big, but you say it, it was this big. And so what I think has occurred over the centuries with the Christmas story is we've sort of sterilized it and we've presented something that's really easy and palatable and it's fanciful, but it doesn't always represent, I think, everything that truly occurred. And so I don't think Jesus is really too bothered by this. I think he maybe rolls his eyes a little bit and says, really? Like, you guys, there's more, there's more to this story. And I think we can look at Christmas songs and kind of open up the aperture and understand a little bit about how this works. For instance, and here's an example, and don't call me a Scrooge yet, just just hear me out. Little Drummer Boy, super cool song, right? Especially David Bowie's version, right? Bowie. Um, But there was no Little Drummer Boy at at the birth of Jesus. We know this, the scripture never says that there was a Drummer Boy, and I also can validate this because... One thing I know is that birthing mothers tend to discourage a rhythm section comprised of children and farm animals uh, during their labor and delivery. Okay? We Three Kings. Again, super cool song. But to get technical, the magi that visited Jesus were not necessarily kings. They could have been astronomers or just wise, um, uh, wise advisors. But there was actually no statement that there was three of them. There could have been more, might have been a little less. But just because they brought three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, doesn't actually mean that there were three of them. And finally, the song that totally gets it wrong is Away in a Manger. I hate this song as much as I hate organ music. The line no crying he makes has actually sparked accusations of heresy by Princeton Theological Seminary in 1999 because they said that if we're singing that no crying he makes line means that Jesus wasn't fully human which goes against all of orthodox Christian beliefs. That's how seriously Princeton takes their hatred for a way in a manger. The point of this is even God's story can get a little bit mixed up in our cultural desire for understanding and satisfaction. We like things tidy and pleasant, but the events surrounding Jesus's birth were not always necessarily that. See, we got two Christmas stories. There's the one that Gospel Luke gives that I just read, it's, it's sterile, it's usually read at Christmas Eve services, I don't know, we'll probably read it here in like a week and a half, and it makes us feel good if you've got kids, you bring them around the tree, and that's the first thing you do before you tear into presents, is you read the story, because you've got to center the, the gift-giving around Christ first, so you've got to read the scripture first, and then, you know, tear into the presents, right? I'm a dad, I know how it goes. Um, That story is heavy on the actual events of Jesus' birth. There's angels singing their song, the shepherds visit, and that's the story that we have come to understand as the Christmas story. Then there's Matthew's version, okay? Matthew's version doesn't have songs. It's really rather R-rated for violence. It deals with themes of narcissism, doubt, genocide, deception, mystery, and ends with Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fleeing to Egypt as political refugees seeking asylum. Totally different telling of the story. And I want to take a peek at that really quick. So, If you've got your Bibles, again, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. Also, the text will be on the screen here. Here's Matthew 2, 1 through 12. <clears throat> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. All right, here's the back story. Here's what happens before we get introduced to these magi. The time of Jesus' birth was politically and spiritually, shall we we say, worst case scenario for the Jews. Spiritually, there was a 400-year period where God seemed silent. He wasn't speaking. We call this uh, the intertestamental period. It's the time from the last book in the Old Testament to the first book in the New Testament. There was no real prophetic stuff going on. God was quiet. The age of the prophets had all been vanished, and the Israelites were on autopilot, Politically, Herod was king, and the idea of Israel being a nation under God had long since been sold to the Romans. You see, Herod called himself Herod the Great, and those who opposed him or questioned him were violently killed or tortured for his own amusement. It was actually common for Herod to have seven or eight hundred Jews crucified on an afternoon for his own amusement. This man was so wicked, he had his wife's son, a 17-year-old boy, murdered. He had his favorite wife, favorite, and two of her sons murdered. And if that's not enough, five days before his death, he had his own son, the heir to his throne, murdered. Herod was so wicked that he had an image of Rome, an eagle erected over the temple of God. Some Jews came and took it down. He had them killed. And then he erected a larger eagle and then wrote a letter to Caesar Augustus that he would sooner have a million Jews killed than to remove the imperial image of Rome. This was the kind of man that was leading God's people at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod was a tyrant, a wicked, murderous tyrant. Now Luke's story, the one that I read, it doesn't mention anything about King Herod's drama. It's very PG. But Matthew gives us a version for more mature audiences. Let's continue with the story. Let's look at Matthew 2, uh, 13 through 18. This was a genocide. In historical terms, Herod was responsible for so much Jewish death that a few other baby boys doesn't get much mention. But I bet as Jesus grew up, he knew what had happened. I imagine, and this is just my imagination, this is my conjecture, that one day as an adult, you know, Jesus would walk the streets of Israel and he would look into the eyes of the old mothers aged just like his own mother Mary, and he would see pain in their eyes. He saw the hurt of loss as they should have had sons his age, but he understood. Jesus knew that their sons died on the account of his birth. All those boys died for him. At the time, what people didn't know is someday he would die for all of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that's what the weeping refers to from Jeremiah's prophecy. Mothers who refuse to be comforted because their sons are no more. Just imagine the death in the land. The question isn't how many families were affected, but how many weren't. I even think of how awkward it would have been for Jesus to have like, I don't know, in elementary school. And there just were no other boys. Just think of that. They're all gone. And this is how God overthrows a tyrant. This is what he does. God crams himself into the virgin womb of a teenage girl and presents himself as a baby. Think about that. And it was hardly a merry night. It was drafty and it was cold in that stable. There were no doctors present in case anything went wrong. There wasn't even the support of family or a pastor, no relatives. Just these strangers, these shepherds that showed up uninvited to see Mary and Joseph and this new baby. All in all, the state of Israel was in shambles. God seemed silent. Rome was the empire and Herod was the new first Hitler. And God doesn't fight back. Think about it. The Old Testament is loaded with examples of God using man's ambition, strength, and strategy to bring about his will. Moses was brave enough to stare down Pharaoh. Joshua possessed the leadership chops to finish the job Moses had started and successfully secure the promised land for the Israelites. Samson's physical prowess was used to kill more of Israel's enemies than any single man ever had in his life or death. King David used military strategy that helped him defeat the giant Goliath but continue to win battle after battle for his nation and yet God doesn't raise up a rebel God doesn't rally the people into civil disobedience God doesn't fight fire with fire he doesn't fight violence with more violence God doesn't use his mighty right hand that's an analogy used in the Psalms He doesn't do that to overthrow man's evil empire. God brings his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and he does it as a baby. You know what a baby represents? Babies represent hope and freedom. Babies know all too well tight little spaces. All of a sudden, then they can stretch out, they can yawn, they can shout, and let us know that they have arrived. Babies represent hope in that as much as the world around them can be falling to pieces, a baby's birth is such a miracle from conception all through development that when one is born, nothing seems impossible. Look again at the poem we read in the beginning. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Call miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling if there's fire on the mountain or lightning in storm and a God speaks from the sky. That means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry, new life at its term. How do we respond to the message of Christ? Not just his birth, but his life, his death, and his resurrection. What do we do? The shepherds, they heard a single verse of a song. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. They heard those words and became the first evangelists, telling everybody they could about what they had seen and heard and could verify. King Herod, he too heard the good news. And instead of worshiping God, all of his insecurities were triggered, leading to a tragedy that we scarcely can comprehend in 21st century America. We all respond a little differently, don't we? We all respond a little different to Jesus. But here is what I know. Here is what is consistent, is how God responds to us. See, the sin of Herod, the sin of Israel, the sin of Baron, the sin of you. God's response is Jesus, perfect Savior to the world, born as a baby, love personified. A baby named Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, What do we do? How do we respond? You sent your son. You sent your son as a baby. He didn't show up as a fully formed man, powerful. He came came humble and meek, well acquainted with suffering. Read the prophecies. Lord, the the cultural zeitgeist of, of this season can suck us up. Man, it can suck us up. So, Lord, call us. Call us into worship. Help us to be obedient. Help us to respond far more like these blue-collar shepherds than than like the, the political powers at the time. With grateful hearts, Lord, that we worship you. Church, let's stand.